The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Sierra. And I'm Ashley. And this is your Weekly Weekly Dose of Wicked. On this day of podcastmas, my favorite podcasters gave to me... 12 poisonings, 11 eyeball pluckings, 10 sleepless weekends, 9 missing hobos, 8 awkward dates, 7 medical malpractices, 6 southern stabbings, 5 golden rings, a quadruple homicide, a few cryptic notes, 2 teenage dirtbags, and a lunatic ex-husband. Hello everyone. Good evening, mates. How's it going? Hope you're enjoying this fabulous fourth day of podcastmas. It's a glorious day. One of the best days there ever could be. Let's not waste any time, shall we? Let's just jump on in. Sounds good to me. On the fourth the day of podcastmas, your favorite podcasters gave to you a quadruple homicide. That was beautiful singing. I know it was. Thank you. I hope you guys are ready for this, because this is B-A-N-A-N-A-S. That's kind of like. Yeah, it's pretty, it's actually pretty crazy. Uh, just a forewarning, there are some children involved, so see you on day five of Podcast Miss if that's not your jam. Get out of here. Are we ready? Ready, Freddy. Today, I would like to talk to you about the Ketty murders. Do you know who that is? Do you know anything about that? No. Well, I mean, maybe. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go. All right, so the year is 1981. Glenna Susan Sharp was a 36-year-old mother of five who had recently relocated to Ketty, California. I want to take a moment there to pause to give kudos to, what did I say, Glenna? Yeah. Is it Glenna, you think, or Glenna? I have no idea. It's G-L-E-N-N-A. I would say Glenna, like Jenna. That's what I thought. Okay, so anyway, um... Glenna Susan Sharp preferred to go by Sue, so that's what we're going to call her from here on out. I would just like to take a moment to give kudos to Sue, raising five children. Yeah, that sounds horrible. It does. Sounds like a lot of work, so good job, Sue. Way to go there. Anyway, she relocated to Ketty, California, which is a small resort town just outside of Quincy, California. I wrote Nevada, but that's not right. <laughs> I think I'm still stuck on my Nevada case. Um... Anyway, just outside of Quincy, California, where she would reside on Ketty Resort Road in Cabin 28. Here I said, Sue, as she liked to be called. We've already covered that, but I'm going to say it again. She had recently left her abusive husband and was starting a new life for herself. So not only was she raising five kids, but she was doing it by herself. So kudos to Sue. Way to go, Sue. So she moved from Connecticut to Northern California with John, 15, Sheila, 14, Tina, 12, Rick, 10, and Greg, 5. Oh, those top ones are bad ages, too. I think that all of them aren't the bestest of ages. You know, you've got a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old, moody teenagers. You've got the 12-year-old, preteen. And then you've got the 10-year-old and the 5-year-old that are probably still being mischievous because they're boys. 
But anyway, prior to moving to the Ketty Resort, the family of six had lived in a one-bedroom single-wide trailer that Sue's brother, Don, had previously lived in. Um, obviously, one bedroom, lack of space for such a large family. So Sue began looking for something bigger for her family of six, and that is when she found Cabin 28. The 33 cabins on Ketty Resort Road had been turned into low-income housing, so Sue was able to rent the two-bedroom cabin for just $170 a month. Wow. Adjusted for inflation, that is $557.34 a month. So, still pretty cheap living. That's super cheap living. I wish I could find something like that. And we're talking about California. Yeah, that's crazy. Unheard of. I don't think you can find anything that cheap in California now. I don't know. Never been to California, but everything I hear says it's very expensive there. That's what I hear as well. So anyway, while the two-bedroom cabin wasn't much bigger than the trailer... Um, it did allow for the girls to have one bedroom and for the younger boys to have the other. And then it had a basement. So the older boy, John had the basement to himself, a finished basement, but I don't know that he cared. He probably just enjoyed having the privacy. Yeah, probably. So it seemed that the family was adapting well to their new life. The kids were in school in the neighboring town of Quincy, California. Sue had a part-time job and she was also taking business classes at a local college. So she was making boss moves, doing good for her kids. It sounds like it. Putting in all the work. Neighbors and classmates alike described Sue as a as a pleasant woman, but that she was a loner. Um, to me, it just seemed like she wanted to provide a good life for her kids, and she didn't need any distractions. So she wasn't involving herself with the locals. She wasn't involving herself with her classmates. She was just going to class, going to work, coming home, taking care of her kids. Um, unfortunately, some local town members did not like Sue. So, of course, the rumor mill was flowing freely. Rumors spread of Sue being promiscuous with men, that she was dealing illegal drugs, and that also she could be a prostitute. So they did not like Sue. It doesn't sound like it. Those are some not nice rumors. Yeah. So on April 11, 1981, it was a normal day for the Sharp family. Sue and the kids were in and out of, the, out of cabin 28 most of the day. John had spent most of, of the day in Quincy with his friend Dana. Um, at one point, Sue and Sheila went and picked John and Dana up. And brought them back to Cabin 28, but the two decided to head back out a little later that afternoon with plans to return that night. Um, Sue was fine with this, but she told them not to hitchhike. Even though it was the 80s and hitchhiking back then was very common, it seems like Sue knew the dangers of that, so kudos to her. It is reported, however, that John and Dana did not listen because they were spotted trying to hitch a ride later that night. Well, they are teenagers. Teenagers don't listen at all. Yep, so John's 15 and John's friend Dana is 17. In the evening, Tina and Sheila are the two girls, Sheila 14, Tina 12. They went next door to cabin 27 to hang out with the Seabolts, which was the family that lived next door. They watched TV and they hung out with their friends. Um, Sheila decided to stay the night, but Tina wanted to go back home. So she walked back to cabin 28. That evening, Rick and Greg also had a friend over to spend the night. His name was Justin. Um, It seemed by all accounts to be a perfectly normal Saturday night for this large family. Lots going on, uh, but the kids, that can be expected. I mean, the children are ranging in age from 5 to 15. So that night, 5-year-old Greg would be the first to turn in at around 8.30, followed by 12-year-old Tina at 9. Rick and Justin went to bed around 10 after watching some TV with Sue. Um, Sue stayed up watching TV, more than likely waiting for John and Dana to return. At around 7 a.m. the following morning, April 12, 1981, 14-year-old Sheila returned home to change her clothes and get ready to go to church with the Seabolts. When she opened the door, she was presented with a horrible scene. The cabin's living room was covered in blood. It was an absolute massacre. 
and lying on the living room floor were 36-year-old Lena Susan Sharp, 15-year-old John Stephen Sharp, and 17-year-old Dana Hall Wingate. Oh, poor baby having to walk into that. Yeah, at 14 years old, walking into her mother, her oldest brother, or her older brother, and her brother's friend on the floor in the living room. That's awful. Uh, yeah. So Sheila immediately ran screaming back to the Seabolts. It's assumed that someone from cabin 27, which is the Seabolts cabin, went to the main lodge to report the homicides as the Seabolts did not have a phone in their cabin. Uh... Jamie Seabolt went over to cabin 28 to check the house for the smaller children since they were still unaccounted for. Um, Jamie did admit that he entered the home through the back door that was left open and that he could possibly have contaminated the crime scene because he walked through the house looking for the kids. He didn't find them though. I think it was just too gruesome of a scene. He ended up exiting the house and Jamie actually ended up getting Greg, Rick and Justin out of the house through the bedroom window so that they wouldn't see like the scene of the murders. Um, at this time, they were also all still asleep. Wow. Yeah. At 8.05 a.m., the sheriff's department received a call from Jan Albin, which was co-owner of the Ketty Resort, uh, reporting that there was a possible homicide. Possible? What else would it be? Makes me so annoyed. I don't, I, I don't know why I'm so annoyed by that, but possible homicide. So first to the scene was Deputy Hank Clement, followed by Sergeant Jerry Shaver, Soon after, more police personnel would arrive, and the investigation immediately ensued. Um, Justin's parents came to pick him up. Sergeant Jerry Shaver took statements while the others processed the crime scene, and they also did welfare checks on the other cabins and interviewed the neighbors. Uh, there were some weird happenings the night before. One neighbor claimed that they had heard a dog barking by cabin 28, but the Sharps didn't have a dog. Another, another neighbor claimed that their cat kept pacing in and out of the cabin. It didn't specify if by their cat they meant... Like, their cat, or if they meant the Sharps cat? I mean, does it really matter? I don't, I mean, I just thought it was weird that it didn't specify. Like, why would their cat pacing have anything to do with the Sharps? I don't know. I don't feel like that was pertinent information, but whatever. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was. Um, another neighbor claimed that they had seen the back porch light on, the on at the Sharps cabin at around 4 a.m. And the most pertinent information was a couple who lived by cabin 28, Claimed to have woken up around 1.30 a.m. and to have heard muffled screaming. That's pretty crazy that a neighbor heard screaming, but the kids in the house didn't. I don't know. Kind of crazy to me that the children were all sleeping as well. Um, so that couple did end up getting out of bed to investigate, but they couldn't determine where the screams were coming from, so they just went back to bed. Okay. <laughs> I liked your face there. I, I just couldn't imagine. Oh, I don't know where that noise is coming from. Sounds like people are in trouble. Whatever, going back to bed. Right. I mean, it's not clear. It was 1981. The Seabolts didn't have a phone in their cabin. Maybe this couple didn't have a phone in their cabin either. And they were like, uh, somebody's probably in trouble, but it's not worth our lives to go to the lodge to call for help. That's really the only way that I can like make up for them. Yeah. Also, um, I looked it up for my case. I think that... Um, 911 did not come into place until 1986. Sounds sounds about right. That sounds really late to me. Uh yeah, but it sounds about right. So it wouldn't have just been like easy like, oh, call 911 because that wasn't a thing. 1967. Oh, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. This says it was introduced in the United States in January of 1968. It sounded right to me though, so maybe we're just both dyslexic. Well, I said 86, it was 68. So I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. Never mind then. 
Disregard. Okay. You know what, though? I don't know, because I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. So it says it was introduced in 1968. But this says, regarding national U.S. coverage, only 26% of the U.S. population could dial the number in 1979. And then in 1987, only 50% of the U.S. population. It actually says that by the year 2000, only 93% of the U.S. population had access to 911. That's crazy. 93%, which I mean is better, but still. I mean, 7% of our population couldn't dial 911. I just feel like 911 has always been around. I mean, clearly not, but... It hasn't, and I knew it hadn't. But the good news is that as of March of 2020, 98.9% of the U.S. population has access to 911. I'm glad that almost everybody has access. There's still 1.1% that doesn't, but... That's crazy. Mm, yeah. How do you not have access? Like, because you don't have a phone or like your phone doesn't call it? I honestly have no idea. But yeah, I mean, I knew that I knew that 911 wasn't always a thing. I mean, I did too in my head, but like, it just doesn't seem possible. Yeah. Well, it is. Okay. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. Continue. All, all I'm saying is the only way that I could see these people not calling for help is, like I said, if they don't have a phone in their cabin. I could see them not wanting to jeopardize their own lives by walking. Like, if someone's out there getting murdered, they don't want to walk out to go to the lodge to call for help. They could get murdered, too. So I could see that. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know that I could just go back to sleep, like they say they did, but... No. So anyway, um, after several hours of investigating, I don't know if you've realized this yet, but uh, police realized that 12-year-old Tina is missing. Right. I don't know if you noticed that or not. She's not one of the victims, and she's also not with the Living Sharp children. So that's, you know, a little, a little concerning. Right. Uh, police are able to determine that the three victims had been bludgeoned with a hammer after being bound with electrical wire and medical tape. Sue and John had both been stabbed multiple times. Sue was gagged and had defensive wounds on both of her arms, showing that she had fought for her and her children's lives. She had also been hit in the head with the butt of a rifle. Sue was nude from the waist down, though there were no signs of sexual assault. Blood analysis at the scene suggests that Sue was moved post-mortem and then she was covered with a yellow blanket. Although Dana had wounds from the hammer, he had also been strangled. And Dana uh, was the friend, right? Yeah, Dana was the friend. Um, on the scene, they recovered a knife by the bodies with a bent blade. So that just goes to show how violent these murders were. They had been stabbed so violently that the knife blade had bent. Uh, they also recovered another steak knife believed to have been used by the perpetrators, as well as a hammer and a hunk of plastic they would later determine came from a BB gun. There was no sign of fourth century. Uh, the phone had been left off the hook, though. All of the lights had been turned off and all of the curtains had been closed. They found a single fingerprint on a railing on the back porch of the cabin. Tina's bed was also covered in blood, so it's determined that she was taken after the attacks. It doesn't say that it was her blood, so it could just have been blood from the other victims, but there was blood on her bed, so she was taken after the attack of her family members. Um, al although they did search for her, Tina was not found. Plumas County Sheriff's Department assigned eight detectives to this case, and they worked around the clock trying to drum up any leads. Two sketches were released to the public, but the two men were never identified. Uh, forensic testing determined that two separate hammers were used. So that would lead them to believe that there were two suspects, obviously. They've got two different men, um, like two different sketches, and they have two hammers. Um, okay. Sounds like two. They also determined that the rifle Sue had been struck with was a Daisy 880 BB gun. Uh, they were able to rule out robbery gone wrong pretty quickly since there was nothing missing from the cabin. It would appear as though Tina is what they were there for. Oh, I said here that it's believed there are two perpetrators. One of them, 
One of them brought a claw hammer, the other a BB gun. While the murders are believed to have been premeditated, they were violent and messy. And the most astounding part of this entire case is how those three little boys slept through the entire thing. Yeah, that is blowing my mind. Yeah, well, it's especially crazy considering that there's blood on the inside doorknob of the bedroom the boys were sleeping in. So whoever it was went in there. Or maybe one of the boys was awake. Okay, I guess that's possible. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. After questioning all three boys, police believe that Justin may have blocked out the memories of the attack because of the trauma. About a month after the murders, Justin confessed to his therapist that he was having dreams about the murders. He just wasn't sure if these were fictional dreams or if they were memories. Police ended up giving Justin a polygraph test, and he said that he thought he may have witnessed the murders. He remembers hearing a noise and getting out of bed. When he did, he saw Sue lying on the couch and that the two men were standing over her. One wore all black and had glasses. The other had brown hair and was wearing army boots. Justin said John and Dana came in and started yelling at the men. And that's when the men became violent. Dana attempted to flee from the kitchen, but was struck by a hammer by the brown haired man. Next, Tina came into the room and asked what was going on. Justin claims that the man in black cut her down her torso with a pocket knife. Um, They had Justin describe the men to a sketch artist. They also put Justin under hypnosis. While under hypnosis, he remembered the men differently. One was tall with blonde hair, the other shorter, and that both men wore glasses. He also remembers that when Dana and John got home, Sue was talking to the men, but then something happened that caused the men to become violent. Justin then remembers Tina coming out after the murders and that the men took her. So by the second account, she didn't get cut down the torso. She just got taken by the men. Uh, The first suspects to come of Justin's statement statements to police were Martin Ray Smart and John Bo Bobetti. So I thought that his name was John, middle name Bo, last name Bobetti. But then I realized I'm a moron. His nickname's Bo. <laughs> okay. Just want to clarify that. I do not believe that his name is John Bo Bobetti. I think his name is John Bobetti and he gets called Bo. I was thinking like that's a lot of Bo's there. John Bo Bobetti. Like sounds like a race car driver or something. I don't know. Sounds like a mouthful. That's what it sounds mm-hmm. like. Yeah, but I think Bo's just his nickname. Okay, that makes sense. So I'm going to call him Bo from here on out because otherwise it might get confusing with John being murdered. Yes. And, you know, so, so Bo, Martin and Bo, uh, they were both criminals, both had a criminal record. Uh, prior to the murders, it's rumored that Sue was somehow involved with the Smarts. So, you know, that rumor mill going crazy. The Smarts lived in cabin 26, which you would think normally evens are on one side of the road, odds are on the other side of the road. You'd think it was her neighbor, but that's not how this worked at all. So cabin 26 was across the street from 28. Okay, like directly across the street? Yeah, it was just straight across the lane. Okay. So the smarts lived in cabin 26, and depending on which rumor you believe, Sue was either helping Martin's wife, Marilyn, leave Martin because he was an abusive husband, or Sue was having an affair with Martin. Two very different. Yes. We'll see which one. I, do you have a guess at like which one do you believe right now? I don't know. You don't know? Okay. Sounds good. 
I mean, I don't know anything about these people. I mean, based off of Sue's character of being an awesome mom, taking care of her kids, going to school, you think she was having an affair with a married man across the way? I mean, no. It sounds like she was probably helping her leave, and he got mad, and so he killed her. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. I just wanted to know what your thoughts were. But I don't know anything else about the story, so. Okay. So Martin claims on the night of the murders that he and Marilyn went to a local bar for some drinks. On the way, they stopped by Cabin 28 and asked Sue if she wanted to join, but she declined, so they went on without her. Um, At the bar, Martin became annoyed by the music being played, so he confronted the manager and left. First of all, what kind of crazy person confronts the manager about the music being played? Who cares? (laughs) I mean, you have worked in service long enough, you know that that's very normal. Well, let me ask you this. If you worked at a restaurant and you didn't like the music they were playing, would you confront the manager about it? If I worked at the restaurant or if I was eating at the restaurant? If you worked there. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. I was going to go with no. Uh, Martin actually worked at this bar. Like, this was his place of employment. So he went into his place of employment drinking and caused a fuss with the manager. I personally would not do that. I mean, if I was working... And the music, I didn't like it. I'd be like, hey, can we change this music? If they said no, then I'd be like, okay, moving on. Yeah, no, that's how it happened. Martin, like, got into, like, an altercation with the manager about the music. As a patron, he came into his place of work on his night off drinking and then, like, got into a confrontation with the manager. Whatever. I just thought it was weird. I also wouldn't do that. Okay. So they left. He and Marilyn returned home. They watched some TV. Marilyn went to bed, but Martin was still annoyed by the music at the bar. So he called the bar to fight with the manager some more. That pesky music. (laughs) Yeah, he was very annoyed by the music. So he calls the bar, fights with the manager some more, and then he and John Bobo Betty go back to the bar for more drinks. So when Marilyn was questioned about this, she told police that she and Martin separated the day after the murders. So it seems to me like maybe Sue was helping her leave her abusive husband. When she was questioned again later on, she told police that Martin, that Martin hated Sue's 15-year-old son, John. And she said that she saw Martin burning something in the fireplace the morning after the murders. Okay. So, uh, when interrogated by police, Martin claimed that his hammer with the blue handle was missing. And that's the end of their investigation. They never look into Martin again. Done. Okay, that's pretty crazy. He looked displeased. Well, it doesn't sound like they really did much investigating. Well, they didn't look into him anymore. Uh, Martin soon left Ketty, and he moved back to Oregon, where he died of cancer. John Bobo Betty also left Ketty after the murders and returned to Chicago, and he later died in 1988. So both Martin and Bo are dead. Uh, A bottle hunter named Ronald Padrini, I believe is how you say his name, was in the woods in Feather Falls, which is about 70 miles from Ketty. On April 22nd, 1984, so three years after the murders, um, and he came across human remains. What's a bottle hunter? I don't know, and I knew you were going to ask that. I had the same question, and I forgot to look it up, so let's research together, shall we? To the interwebs! Okay. Mm, It looks like they're people that go and look for vintage liquor bottles. Yeah, I just assumed it was like a kind of hunting or something. Like, not like actual looking for bottles, but yeah, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. I mean, where did they live? California. I was thinking like maybe like moonshine, but do they make that in California? I have no idea. Okay. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Bottle hunters. It says that finding evidence of potential antique bottle dumps or middens is done by searching areas where it is likely the older garbage were 
older garbage was deposited. Diggers generally look for clues of pre-1920 junk piles in the woods or down embankments, places where old houses or businesses stand or once stood. So apparently it's a common thing. There's actually tons of YouTube videos about it. All right, then. So anyway, bottle hunter named Ronald Padrini in the woods in Feather Falls, 70 miles outside of Ketty. On April 22nd, 1984, he comes across remains. Um, initially, they're believed to be Native American remains, but in an, an anonymous tip to the police claim that they are the remains of Tina Sharp. And about two months later, forensic testing does confirm they are, in fact, the remains of 12-year-old Tina. According to forensics, it is determined that Tina died sometime after November 1st, 1981. So six months after her abduction. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And she was 70 miles away and they didn't find her. They are not able to determine a cause of death due to the decomposition of the body. Um, in 2013, Mike Gramberg was hired as a special investigator in the case. Uh, he was not involved in the case back in 1981. He was like fresh out of the academy, a little deputy. So he was not put on the case. Um, so while he was not like part of the initial case, it is, he is close to the case for personal reasons. So he apparently actually coached Greg and Rick in martial arts. And Dana was at his house the day before the murder. So he does have special interest in the case. Um, Mike Granberg claims that locals did not have, um, I don't know the word that I'm looking for. Uh, 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 I don't know the word. Confidence. He claims that locals were not confident in the police department at that time, in the sheriff's office, whatever. Um, they did not believe that they could keep them safe. They didn't believe that they were handling the investigation properly, as no arrests were ever made. By this point, it's 2013. So when he starts looking into the case, he finds it's a mess. The case files are like not where they're supposed to be. Uh, there's evidence that was supposed to be kept in a freezer. And at one point, the freezer was like unplugged and all of the evidence thawed out. There was like blood and DNA evidence in this freezer. Um, there's a log of all the evidence. It's completely missing. Uh, essentially, all of the evidence has just been completely mishandled in the past. I mean, it just sounds like they botched this case. That's essentially what Mike Granberg thinks as well. He says that he's not one for conspiracy theories, but to him, doesn't look like they handled the case well at all. Um, like I said, like there's evidence in... Ketty. There's also evidence in like Quincy, like the evidence is at different police departments. It's just a mess. So he's like, you know, like this is just insane. It was just really not handled well. <sighs> so in 2016, a hammer is found in a dried up pond by the entrance of Ketty Road. And it's matched to the hammer that was missing from Martin's house. That one that he just misplaced, couldn't find. Um, in April of 2018, Gamberg claimed that they matched DNA to a living suspect. But to this day, a name has not been released and no arrests have been made. That's crazy. Yeah. So Gamberg said that the, the case was grossly mishandled during the initial investiga investigation. And then he said, the case was as messed up as a soup sandwich. I like that. I liked that too. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> um, after the murders, Ketty essentially became abandoned. Um, like the case remained unsolved. Tourists were afraid to stay there. I don't blame them. Uh, in 2004, Cabin 28 was demolished. And to this day, it's essentially just like a ghost town. That's kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Um, I bet you're wondering what happened to the, the living sharp children. I am. So initially, um, they were sent to live with an aunt. But the aunt soon became overwhelmed. She had children of her own. And then to add three more children to it, she just couldn't handle it. 
Um, so the children were then put into foster care where they were then separated. That's sad. It is sad. Uh, Sheila said that she felt like she um, had to kind of become like a surrogate mother to the kids, to the younger kids. And um, she did her best to try and like shelter them from what had happened to their mother and siblings. Sheila's now in her 50s. She's happily married with three children and she's the grandmother of two. She said that uh, living through like this horrible crime and the massacre of her family has made it difficult for her to get close to people. Um, she said that she feels like she's constantly like watching her back to make sure that there's like no one coming up on her. Just made her really on edge. Um, I could imagine. Yeah. She also said in an interview in 2016 that she wanted people to remember her mother's kindness and not the brutal murders. She said her mom was the kind of person that would have done anything for anybody. So that's just what she wants people to remember. Um, and in 2021, ABC News reported that they were closer than ever to solving this case. But that's... But I haven't heard anything. Haven't heard anything since. So essentially, this is just a cold case for too long. 40 years, I mean. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. It is crazy. I would agree. So anyway, it's your fourth day of podcast, Miss. It really sucks. Like, if they maybe wouldn't have you know botch that did better job uh she might have still been alive what was her name tina yeah tina yeah she was alive for six months after right like they maybe could have found her yeah well they didn't that's horrible yeah gamberg had said um i don't remember what i was going to say about him oh he had said that based off of his like looking into the evidence and whatnot he believes that up to six people were involved wow that's mm -hmm. a lot of people yeah and he said that they have like two the DNA of, like, two suspects who are believed to have been, like, um, accomplices, not necessarily to have completed the murders, but to have helped after the fact. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, but they haven't arrested anyone, so. You would think with, like, a small town and how much rumors they have that. Well, the town's gone, so, I mean, there's no one there anymore. Well, yeah, but not during the, I mean, they were there during the investigation. Yeah, but they botched that. Gamberg only came onto the case in 2013. And, like, he's the one that's making headway here. But, like, by this point, it's, I mean, everyone's gone. I mean, I think people started leaving Keddy pretty immediately after the murders. I mean, like, Bo, Bo Betty, John Bo Bo Betty and uh, Martin Smart left pretty immediately after the murders. I would assume Marilyn left probably since her husband and her had separated. Um, like, it seems like, and also it was a pretty small town. Like, there were 33 cabins on that road. I don't know. It seems like it dismantled pretty quickly. Right. So, I don't know. Pretty crazy. What are you looking up? I was looking up the town. Not really finding anything. No, it's gone. I'm telling you, there's like nothing on it. It's gone. Are you spelling it right? Probably not. Uh, their population was 66 in 2010. Yeah. Tiny. Well, yeah, because they're all gone. Okay. How do you spell it? K-E-D-D-I-E. -E. Yeah, they come up on hauntedplaces.org. They're mm -hmm. abandoned town. Yeah, so as of 2010, there were 66 members, like 66 people. And in 2000, there was only 96. So, I mean. Yeah, so they got out of there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it says that there are 96 people, 37 households, and 23 families residing. So... I don't know exactly when they left, but, I mean, they got out of there. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know that it was ne necessarily ever, like, a booming community. It seems like it was always a pretty small area, but, um, or, like, a small, low population area or whatever. But, I mean, it was a resort town. And, like, people came in there. There's a railroad that goes right through it. 
Right. Like at one point it was like a, a bustling railroad town, you know? I mean, obviously right. that was pre-1980. Popular tourist town like um, Radiator Springs. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's sad. Obviously it's a sad case. And um, it's also sad that like the town just went to crap. Yeah, pretty crazy that, I mean, I was going to say one thing happened. That's a pretty big thing. But I mean, still like. Right. One occurrence and they're like, okay, bye town. I think it's just because they didn't have any, um, like, faith in the police to keep them safe. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them. I think they were just... Not doing good. I think they were just scared, you know? Right, and, like, tourists weren't coming, so... Right. Tourists weren't going to come because they were scared, so yeah. So anyway, that's it. That's day four of Podcast Mess. We'll catch you tomorrow on day five when we cover... Five Golden Rings! Was that good? That was beautiful. Happy to hear it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Okay. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard and want to support a small podcast, please give us money at www.patreon.com forward slash weekly dose of wicked, where you can join one of our three tiers at the $5 level. We've got the moderately wicked for $7 a month. We've got the awesomely wicked. And for all of those high rollers, big ballers out there, we got the $10 level, the extraordinarily wicked. As a member of our Patreon, you are entitled to bonus episodes. Uh, you also get a one-time shout-out on our podcast, as well as some other cool little extra things going on there. So come on over. Join our fan club. Feel free to give us a follow on Instagram at weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked or you can literally just search weekly dose of wicked and we'll pop up because we're the only ones for a direct feed of our podcast please go to www.weeklydoseofwicked.buzzsprout.com great news you can now listen to us pretty much wherever you like to listen to podcasts that's right, folks. We are big time. You can now hear your weekly dose of Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Plus Alexa, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, Podcast Index, Overcast, Castro, Castbox, and Podfriend. The only place we can't seem to get ourselves on is Pandora. So we'll let you know when that happens. In the meantime, make sure to come back next Wednesday for your weekly, weekly dose, dose of, of wicked. wicked. But I'm. Um,